With the new Chevy Silverado, you might be driving in this. But with the Silverado's redesigned interior and large infotainment screens, it'll feel more like this. Introducing the new 2022 Chevy Silverado. Find new upgrades. Find new roads. Chevrolet. Could family genetics be a reason that no matter what we try, we still can't lose the fat and inches from our problem areas? To learn more, we spoke to Dr. Brian Strand from Sonobello. While some people can eat everything and stay thin, others diet and exercise daily and still pack on fat and inches to their problem areas. It's not your fault. It can be genetics. If you struggle to lose the fat from your tummy, love handles, thighs, and back, you're likely battling your family genetics. The good news is we have an answer. Sonobello uses a remarkable technique called microlaser fat removal. In one comfortable visit, the fat in your hardest places to lose is gone permanently. Stop wrestling with your family genes and lose the fat permanently. And right now you can save $250. The results are life-changing. Do this for you. Don't wait. Visit sonobello.com slash save. Sonobello.com slash save. Sonobello.com slash save. This is A Different Perspective with Kevin Randall. Kevin is a retired United States Army Lieutenant Colonel who has studied UFOs for more than 50 years. His military training has provided him with unique insight into military operations and UFO research. Kevin has investigated many of the most mysterious cases and has been consulted for dozens of documentaries and been interviewed on hundreds of radio and television programs about UFOs. Considered to be one of the leading experts on the Roswell UFO crash, Kevin has written more than 25 books about UFOs including Roswell in the 21st Century and Encounter in the Desert, a re-examination of the Socorro UFO landing. Now here is the host of A Different Perspective, Kevin Randall. And welcome to this edition of A Different Perspective. I am in fact Kevin Randall. I've told you this many times. You should have been listening. Uh, I don't like to delve, delve into politics, and I'm going to do it just for a moment here and say that no matter how the election in the United States comes out, we're in for a rough time. One side's going to be horribly annoyed, and the other side's going to be joyous, and I'm afraid there's going to be all kinds of violence in the streets no matter what happens. That's my only comment on the politics, and I don't know where to go with it from there. It just is disgusting, I think. My guest today is Lee Spiegel. He has presented credible, compelling UFO stories to the public since 1975 when he produced and wrote a documentary record album, UFOs, The Credible Factor, The Credibility Factor for CBS Incorporated. This was the first time that a major recording company offered a UFO-related product via the primetime TV infomercial. Wow, that was a mouthful. In 1978, Spiegel's second attempt at UFO disclosure uh, took place when he became the only person in history to produce a milestone presentation on UFOs at the United Nations. He brought together leading military scientific experts who urged world leaders to establish an international UFO study committee. Between 1978 and 1986, Spiegel produced, wrote, and hosted nearly 1,500 local and national programs on NBC radio dealing with UFOs, unexplained phenomena, and between 2010 and 2017, he was the chief Huffington Post writer of hundreds of stories about the paranormal UFOs and science. In 2012, he was honored with the International UFO Congress Researcher of the Year Award. Spiegel was featured in the uh, 2014 Sci-Fi Channel's documentary Aliens on the Moon, The Truth Exposed, and in 2015, he was a cast member on season two of history series Hangar One UFO Files. And by the way, as a science fiction writer, which I'm accused of regularly, which somehow supposedly disqualifies me from UFO research, though, we in the science fiction community prefer science fiction to sci-fi. I just throw that in as a point of personal interest, I guess. Lee is a co-producer and co-writer of The Phenomenon, which is the new movie, a 2020 documentary about UFOs, and the new installment of filmmaker Jamie, James Fox acclaimed UFO films. He is also producer host of a resurrected version of his previous NBC radio talk show, The Edge of Reality, which originally aired from 1982 to 1986. The new program, Edge of Reality Radio, is broadcast over KGRA 
Digital Broadcast Network and distributed by iHeartRadio. Lee Spiegel, I have worn myself out reading your short biography. So welcome to A Different Perspective. I, I'm, I'm, I'm breathless just hearing you say all that stuff. <laughs> wow. Um, would, well, you, you noticed... Yes. You noticed I trimmed it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was that was the short bio. <laughs> yeah, um, well, it's an impressive career, um, no matter how you slice it. Wow, thank you. So, I'm I'm not going to I'm not going to delve into the absolutely ridiculous question that everybody always: How did you get into UFO research? Uh, we're going to skip right back right beyond that and goes to the phenomenon and wow. the reason yeah. the reason this program was created, meaning this particular episode of it is there had been some negative comments about the phenomenon suggesting it was the same old, same old, a rehash of everything, and they wanted something new and different. Yeah. yeah. So to put you on the spot, what's your response to that? My response to that, and by the way, should I call you Kevin or Lieutenant Colonel Randall? Well, which do you prefer? I prefer his royal <laughs> highness, to be frank. <laughs> well, I can deal with that, too. <laughs> I'm very flexible. <laughs> but if uh, I can call you Lee, you can call me Kevin. Uh, well, you got it. No problem. Okay. I, I, you know, Kevin, I've, I've seen a lot of the, uh, the reviews and the comments to those reviews as well. And yeah, there, there are people out there whose attitude is uh, because they've seen previous movies that were done by, by James Fox, his movies out of the blue. And I know what I saw. And, and people are just automatically assuming that well, why should I spend any money and get this movie? Why should I even bother watching it? Because he's probably just rehashing old stories, familiar cases in the UFO field. Well, yeah, there are, there are some things in there that for people who aren't really aware of a lot of those cases, although they may be very familiar cases, there's so much background information and things that happened with those cases People that had never been interviewed before that give more credibility, a little more integrity. I love the word credibility um, to to cases, and and sure, you know, Kevin, I've watched the movie many times because as part of my job um, as being one of the writers and co-producers on the film, I actually it was my task near the end of production, I had to actually transcribe the entire film. It's an hour and 40 minutes long because they wanted to have a really good transcription of it for the translation of it to different languages. And I wanted to make sure that they got the transcript right. And so word by word by word from the narration by, done by actor Peter Coyote to every other voice and audio clips in the movie, I had to then transcribe it. It was a long job. And you know what? After watching the movie many times, I kept coming away from it going, no, I, my attitude was not, oh, I've seen this before. In fact, over the last couple of months, I've probably seen it 40 times now, but I never got tired of the new stuff. And, and by new stuff, I mean just new perspectives. We've got people in this movie and clips that no one has ever seen before. In really throughout the UFO history, because we had an amazing team of people uh, not the least of which was James Fox's sister, Kelly. Kelly Fox did an incredible job going, searching through archives all over the country, all over the world of things dealing with the UFO subject, archive footage, materials, news clippings, audio clips, video clips that people hadn't seen before. And we were just knocked out by the stuff that we were getting that related to yes, familiar stories. Well, now let, me, they were, let me break in. Let me break in yeah, here because I'm sure I'm going to make a comment. Okay. Because some of my books have gotten that same sort of a criticism. Mm. And when I was doing Encounter in the Desert, which deals with Socorro, it yeah. began because Ben Moss and Tony Angiola had said something on this radio program about there being three phone calls into the police department in Socorro prior to Lonnie Zamora going out and seeing the, the landed craft. And I asked them repeatedly, did you look at the police log? I think I asked them three times. Yeah. And I never got a satisfactory answer for that. And that inspired my interest in the case. And in going through the Project Blue Book file, I found a, 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 a document, a report written by Captain Holder, who was the uh, cap, uh, Air, Army captain 
who came out from Socorro and interviewed Zamora that very night, mm-hmm. along with the FBI guy. Right, right. In that report, he mentions that there had been three phone calls into the police station. They didn't bother to log them because nobody believed it. Nobody cared about it. Yeah. So I was able to I was able to find documentation that proved there had been phone calls into the police station prior to Lonnie Zamora actually seeing the landed craft and calling back to the police station himself. So to me, that was a new piece of evidence yes. that had not been reported that I thought was extremely interesting. And it was something that I could put into the to my book Encounter in the Desert that allowed uh, allowed me to take one step beyond what others had reported in the past. There, you, you, you talked about that. Are there some examples that you can give me without giving away too much of these little nuggets that, that, that you found in the movie? Or in the investigation for the movie. Well, you know what? The one that that strikes my heart personally, and you know, as as you know, when you're doing a movie or a documentary, any kind of film, you're going to have things that are just left on the cutting room floor and the editing floor that you just you have too much overwhelming stuff, so some things never get into the final product. In order to keep the movie to an hour and forty minutes long, we we (laughs) had to get rid of so much stuff. Interviews with people that maybe they'll be ready for another movie or a follow-up. I don't know. But but for me personally, we only and we can only show a little clip of this uh, in the film itself. In 1978, as you mentioned uh, at the beginning, I I was the producer of a United Nations presentation on UFOs. And and before we did the presentation in 1978, the country of Grenada that sponsored my proposal, uh, they had they had given me, they had sent a letter to me and to the other nations of the world and to the media, letting people know that in working toward the November 1978 presentation, I was given full filming rights to the presentation. And I was very happy about that and I was gonna set it all up and just literally a week before we did the presentation, uh, the, someone from Grenada contacted me. I guess it was one of the ambassadors. And they said, I, I don't have to worry about any more details about filming the presentation because they uh, they were going to do the filming themselves. And I said, okay. And they had promised me my own, after the fact, copy of the complete hour and a half presentation that we did at the UN. So I felt pretty confident that that's what was going to happen. Well, that's not what happened. Uh, they ended up not filming it, and and for 40 years, literally, I was looking for any footage of the UN presentation. Otherwise, and I, I assumed it was lost, and it would never be seen by anyone. James Fox's sister, Kelly, found the footage of the complete presentation. And, and I'll, I'll never forget the day that James called me uh, and said, uh, what have you been looking for for 40 years? And I said, well, I'm very happily married, and so I'm not looking <laughs> for someone else to, to match my life and happiness. He said, no, really, what else have you been looking for for 40 years? And I said to James, don't tease me, because you know what I've been looking for. And he said, we've got it. And I cried, because I hadn't seen it. Kevin, I hadn't seen my own presentation in 40 years, but uh, Kelly found it uh, in, 19, in, in 2018. So that was 40 years after the presentation. And, and I had to go through a lot of different steps to get the rights back to the presentation. I had to get a new agreement put together between me and the UN. And now the agreement is in my name. I'm considered now the producer of it, and I have the rights to the film footage for the next 50 years. And so uh, we only showed maybe, maybe 30 seconds of J. Allen Hynek and Jacques Vallée during their speeches at the UN on that day. All the rest of it is out there waiting to be seen, but no one in the UFO world or community has ever seen this stuff, (laughs) including me. (laughs) <laughs> and this was my presentation. So that that's what I mean. That's the kind of thing that we have. People have been wondering about this UN thing for years, and now we've got the, the whole presentation, which was riveting. And so that that's like the, the long answer to your question of that's one nugget we've got, I've got. And I'm thrilled about that. I mean, totally thrilled that, that we could find that and have it now. 
Well, there's a couple of questions that spring to mind immediately, and we'll have to get back to them in, in a moment here. Yeah. But one of them is, are there, are there some sightings in there that have not been well publicized or, or are unknown, basically, that lead us to the conclusion of extraterrestrial that, that this presentation uh, covers that haven't been seen before and that sort of thing? I think that's the kind of thing people would be looking for. Um, in this, in in your movie, or in the phenomenon as well, something that's that's new and vital and exciting that really hasn't been covered, and and these little nuggets, uh, we need to kind of explore that uh, a little bit more when we come back right after this. We're going to have sure. to take a short break here, obviously, okay. because mm -hmm. that's what we do. But I want to thank those of you who have purchased a copy of the Best of Project Blue Book. And it, and it suffers from that same problem. People say, well, it's, it's just a rehash of stuff. No, there's little things in there that I found that have not been published before and I think are interesting. Uh, it's been up and down on the Amazon bestseller list. If uh, you enjoyed it, please rate it, write a review, because that helps spread the word. And if you do that, at Encounter in the Desert and Roswell in the 21st Century. And if the mood moves you, look at the books of Eric Helm because I am the writer of the Eric Helm books as well, but that deals with the Vietnam War. We will be back right after this with more with Lee Spiegel, so please stick around. Joined with, joined by, I should say, not joined with, joined by Lee Spiegel. We are not in the same room. We are not in the same town. We're probably not in the same state. We are practicing social distancing. Just want everybody to know that. Although I don't happen to be wearing a mask at the time because I'm all alone in this room and don't need one <laughs> for this particular purpose. When we went away, we were talking about, I guess, I, I, was, I was looking for something kind of exciting and new and different that we could look for in, in, in the phenomenon or yeah. in this uh, UN production that you uh, were involved with, something that um, may not have gotten wide circulation that might uh, pique the interest, uh, something like that. Uh, any, any little clues of what we could look for? Well, yeah, and, and I'm going to tell you, and I don't think I'm uh, giving it away because the movie's out there and people are talking about this. One of my very favorite moments in the whole movie happens at the very beginning of the movie and it 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 grabs you hopefully it will grab you and everyone um because it involves a story see it's a, it comes right back to this other thing kevin it's a story that's some people will say well that's an old story we've heard that before well yeah but man you haven't seen it like this before and that's the difference it's a story on the surface are you familiar, Kevin, with a story that goes back to 1955 involving a B-25 bomber uh, that was piloted Major by... Major Coleman? My, Major William Coleman, yes. Uh, I, I believe I am familiar with that story. Okay, see, again, it's one of those familiar stories. Hey, Lee, what else can you uh, tell us or show us about the story that's not been seen or heard before? Well, well, we do it at the beginning of this movie. And every time I look at this sequence... Like, my heart just skips a beat. Like, this is, like, for me, one of those wow moments for myself. Well, give, us, give us a description of what Major Coleman said, or Major Coleman saw when he was flying along with the, in his, B, B, I can say B-25 and the flying saucer, so. Uh, <laughs> yes. Um, they, were, they were flying on a routine uh, mission um, uh, over, I think they left Florida and they were heading for, I forget the, the town of where they were going, but it was just a routine. They were delivering the B-25 to another location. And he had a crew of two or three um, airmen in there with him. Very typical routine, not very high. Uh, and, and all of a sudden, uh, the crew chief uh, or the co-pilot said, you know, what's, what's that weird thing in the sky, that bright thing? And, and, and they saw this light, this very bright light, rapidly descending in front of the bomber. And, and then as they got closer to it, uh, they they realized that this this was just not an airplane, and and we we cut back and forth between Bill Coleman talking about this, saying that you know what is that thing? It doesn't have any wings, doesn't have a tail. What is that thing? Um, and uh, I'm gonna you know hold on. I'm gonna do a hard bank, and we're gonna come around, and we're gonna get behind this thing. Now, while you're listening to him talking about this thing, we intersperse it with cuts. Uh, first of all, <laughs> I said to you, uh, I'll say to you, 
James called me at one point and we were trying to figure out how do we do this story in a really compelling way. He said to me, we need a B-25 bomber that works, that flies. <laughs> so, okay, fine. And he says, we don't want archive footage. I want a real one, you know, that we can, we can photograph today. So I, I, it was my task. I found a B-25 bomber at a place out in California that there are many of them I discovered. There are many places and people who have old World War II bombers that have been renovated, and they use them in, in uh, air shows. They use them in, in movies and TV uh, productions. So, yeah, you can, you can see and even fly in a B-25 bomber if you want to, and it'll cost you too. And, uh, and so I found this company uh, in Southern California, and, uh, and we shot. We, we paid them. To, to let us have their B-25 bomber. The, the co-owners of the company were also um, pilots. And so we said to them, here's what we would like you to do. We want these kind of shots. We want to see the bomber flying from the ground cameras. We want to see it from like another vehicle ab above it and below it and to the side of it, shooting across at it. We want, we want these kinds of shots. We want it taking off. We want it landing. And so it was a whole day's worth of shooting of this B-25 bomber everywhere. I mean, so what, but, but let's, let's go back to Major Coleman. What, what exactly did he see? What was the sighting like? You hear him describe what this thing was. And he says, look at that thing. It has no wings, it's no tail. And, and look at the shadow. And we show. He says it's coming up on a field, and we cut to a reenactment, but it's a really good recreation. As recreations go, you see this big field as if you were watching it from inside the cockpit, and you see this dark circular shadow going across the field. And he says, cut back to him saying, look at that shadow. It's, it's circular. And that's when he says that I'm gonna, we're going to get behind it, so hold on. And and so the next thing we, we see is the actual a flying saucer going across the field. It's 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 like about fifty or sixty feet across, very, very bright, shiny, silver, no seams, no windows, no port no portholes, just moving across the field and you then you cut back to Coleman saying and it was just moving across the field and it had these two big swirls coming from behind it as it was right across the field and we cut to the ship going across the field with two big swirls coming as if it was kicking it up as it was You've right been kicking the up the dirt the dirt yeah the field. oh yeah oh yeah it's very dramatic and and not only that but the, the the people who did the music track for the whole film they put in incredible music here it's like it's like something out of close encounters of the third kind the music just fits every single moment of what you're looking at and you can't believe your eyes there's part of you that, that doesn't want to believe this is a recreation it's so well done and the did, thing uh, is, did Coleman report this to project blue book oh yeah when they when they finally landed uh, all of them uh, were debriefed uh, by by project blue book they, they had to fill out separate um, briefing sessions and documents. And years later, and we say, ironically, in the film, we say years later, 10 years later, Coleman became the public uh, spokesman, the public information officer for Project Blue Book. And when he got that position, he went looking for those records and he could never find them. Oh, yeah, that's, that's like all part of the story. It was never to be seen. But when you see this thing as he's describing it, and he basically said, you know, it had no seams and no tail, no wings. And he looks right at you and he goes, it was a true flying saucer. And you believe it. If I go to the Project Blue Book files, which are now public record, we can search through all of them. I won't be able to find his case. I, I, I don't know. I don't know if they've finally come available after all the, uh, you know, the declassifying of them. But he couldn't find them. And he should have been able to find them. He had a high enough clearance. And he always wondered about that. Uh, what, was the date of his, what was the date of his sighting? Uh, well, it was, I don't know the exact date offhand. I'd, I'd have to go to the narration and see. But it, it was 1955. Uh, and I can, I can even send it to you uh, if you want to do a little digging yourself. But I've, I've, got, I've got the dates and all that. Well, yeah, I'd, I'd like to take a look at that. Because, sure. Uh, and, and, you know, talking about things like that, I have uh, come across a number of instances where 
the Air Force hid information, buried information, denied information that all relates to national security. Yeah. And and um, I'm not sure whether the sighting like this would fit into a national, how it would fit into the national security window, but I know that was invoked in the Condon Committee when they did their investigation in the late 60s. Uh, they were granted access to a great deal of UFO information, except that information that impacted national security. Their conclusion was, of course, there was no national security interests in there. But if you go back and you look at their report, the massive report, there's a case from Belt, Montana in 1967, where they're quizzing the UFO officer, um, Lieutenant Colonel, I think it's Lewis Chase. Okay. Uh, could be Chase Lewis, <laughs> one of those <laughs> names you could reverse. Okay. Uh, who and, and was asking about some of the activities around its Maelstrom Air Force Base in the missile fields. Oh, right and, right. and he's told we can't talk about that. It's national security. Well, there right there was evidence to the Condon Committee that national security was, in fact, an issue in the 1960s about UFOs. And uh, but but the Condon Committee, of course, suggested, well, there's no national security interest. Uh, there's no national security emphasis on any of these cases, which turns out to be kind of a bogus statement. Yeah, that's so amazing. You know, back then it was amazing, and it still is. Although now, at least, there, there's a Senate Intelligence Committee headed by Marco Rubio of Florida that they're looking into things about these UAPs, uh, unidentified aerial phenomena, um, that people, they want to know. Um, of all the things that are being cited now, going back to the USS Nimitz case and the Tic Tac UFOs and all the things we've been hearing about since 2017, now suddenly there are some people on the Hill in Washington that are saying, you know what, this does involve national security because, we're, and we're not saying it's out of space or extra dimensional, we're saying that we want to know who has this technology. And and if it's if it's someone one of the nations on Earth, then that's even more uh, important for us because if somebody else besides us has much better technology than we have, we need to know this. Well, I like to keep reminding people, you know what? What about the technology going back to even 1947 when Lieutenant General or General Nathan Twining wrote a famous memo that basically was where he was saying the phenomenon reported is, is something real. It's not fictitious. Here are the characteristics of it. You know, round on, round on the bottom with the dome on top. We don't know what these things are. They outmaneuver anything we've got. We need to know about this. Well, that's a matter of national security. It's always been, I think. Well, let's, let's back up. Yeah. In your film, do you talk about the Tic Tac? Do you have uh, information sure. about the is there yeah. anything that you learned and, and is in the movie that we may not know about that you can kind of tease us with? I, I, will, I will tease you with related to the Tic Tac UFO, as many people who are, have been following this for some time now know that uh, former Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid of Nevada was instrumental in coming up with the money years ago uh, with the help of two of his Senate colleagues uh, to come up with the money uh, so the Pentagon, the Defense Department, could could do UFO studies, even though they did it behind the scenes. They didn't want the public to know that they were actually still investigating UFOs. And and during the interview that uh, the James and I did with Senator Reid in his office, uh, at one point James said to him flatly, and, you, and you'll see this in the movie, he said, um, are you saying that um, that there are a lot of cases like the ones we're talking about, the, the Nimitz cases, are there a lot of cases where they haven't seen the light of day? And there's a moment in the movie, and we kept that in there, Senator Reid um, grabbed a bottle of, uh, of of cold water, and he unscrewed it, and we have this on, he unscrewed it, took a swig while he was thinking about his answer, put the top down, then he said to James, I'm, I'm saying that, that most of it hasn't seen the light of day. It's a great moment in the film. Well, we can go back to 1969 and General Bolander, who told, yes. who made the statement that that uh, cases that impacted national security were not part of the Blue Book system. So exactly. clearly there, yes. there was a parallel reporting system that, that we have not really broken into. Yeah, I, I mean, you, you, if you talk to people these days, like, like uh, retired Colonel Charles Halt, from, from the Air Force, who was involved with the uh, the famous Bentwaters UFO incident. 
And, and he will say to you, he said, if there's anybody in the public that actually believes what the government or the military has been saying about how we've been told everything there is to be told, nothing's being kept from us. He says, anybody who believes that now is totally naive and completely ignorant of the facts and how this all works. He said, there, there are so many behind the scenes facets of the government, the, you know, the three letter words are called uh, FBI, CIA, NAC, NSI, you know, places like that. And you know about some of these, I'm, I'm sure. Well, I saw a bumper sticker the other say uh, the other day that said basically, "Do not believe anything the government tells you until it's been officially denied." Oh, I, I, was, I like oh, that's good. That, that's uh, we're going to have to take another break here. Okay. Um, when we come back, I want to talk to you a little bit about Socorro and 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 the interviews with Lonnie Zamora's wife and some of the things that came out of out of that that I think are quite interesting. I think people are going to be interested in. Yeah. And we'll uh, delve a little bit deeper into some of the nuggets that uh, I can pry out of you to entice people to go watch the movie and prove that it's not the same old thing. <laughs> you're you're listening to a different perspective on the Exxon Broadcast Network, XZBN. So we'll be back right after this. So please stick around. Talking with Lee Spiegel of UFO fame, I guess he's been around forever in a week, um, almost <laughs> as long as I have. I, but I, I know, wanna... I know. When you said that, you said more than fifty years. You've been, uh, you've been at this, huh? Yes, if you count some of the things I did when I was in the army, off unofficially, not part of my army duties, but because I was in locations, I could go do things. I was training at uh, Fort Rucker, Alabama, mm. helicopter. Uh, advanced helicopter training, and we were close to a number of places. We went to Wiki Watcher, Wiki Watchy Springs, where um, oh, okay, the guy the name was Reeves. I keep wanting to say George Reeves, but that was okay. Superman. Yeah, that's right. Um, who had claimed to have met people from Venus, and uh, they landed near his trailer and all of that stuff. So we went there and talked to the police. And, and, and that's the one thing, you know, you just say, well, that's all been discussed before and we know it's a hoax. But when we were in there talking to the sheriff's deputies who investigated the case, they said that the Reeves had found these little papers, these documents that had a bizarre feel to it. He said it's sort of like flash paper. And uh, they, it sent it off to the Air Force. When it came back, it was not the same thing. It was different. It had been changed slightly. It had been... Uh, maybe copied or whatever, but I thought always thought that was interesting that the, here's the sheriff's deputy who was involved in this telling me that, and I, I haven't really seen that reported um, in other locations. But that's the kind of thing that uh, you know we talk about. I was um, before we went away. I was I was I, I know that um, James spent a lot of time with Lonnie Zamora's family. Right, Lonnie Zamora had passed away. I know, I know that uh, he was granted access to his papers yes. and, uh, and all of that sort of thing. And I was wondering if there was some information that came out of, out of that study that would be, be of interest to us here today. One of the things that happened with all the time that uh, James had spent with uh, the Zamora family, especially his wife, um, they, they got to, to trust James. It's a big thing about this field, and I'm sure you know about it, Kevin. People... If they don't trust you, then then you're not going to get what you're looking for. So you have to kind of build the trust between you and eyewitnesses or military or politicians. There has to be a trust. And the Zamora family trusted James to the point where they um, they let James go through all of all of the countless letters that, that Zamora had received from people, from young people, middle-aged, older people from all around the world. Uh, not just supporting his story, because by, at that point, it was like a worldwide case now uh, about what happened in Socorro. But th these were letters that basically wanted Lonnie to know that they had also had similar experiences or seen things and really felt for the guy. And the Zamora family allowed James to take these letters. And there's a place in the movie where... 
you you will suddenly you'll see overlapping bits and pieces of of a lot of those letters on the screen, and because we have a a special um, a, a Dolby five channel surround soundtrack in the movie, it there are many voices that James got to read excerpts from these letters, and those voices go basically all around your head if you're listening to the movie in Dolby Surround. It's mesmerizing to hear all these voices all around you, and the voices are all aimed at Lonnie Zamora. It's, it's bewitching to listen is there, to. Is there, is there a particular letter that stood out? Uh, if, if people are describing their experiences, or a particular letter that stuck, you know, out, stuck out? You know what? There, there, there actually is, is one because of, of, of the, the voice itself. It was like a, a six or seven-year-old young boy uh, who was reading it. And, and in fact, I, I don't even think James would mind if I tell you this, but he enlisted, he recruited his young son, Ollie, uh, to read the letter. So we could get Ollie's young, very young-sounding voice, and and basically the letter says to you know, Mr. Zamora, uh, I, I'm very anxious to know more about this thing that you saw, and do you, can you tell us all where they came from, why are they here, and what do they want from us? You know, things like that, uh, the kind of questions that you might not think a, a kid would ask, and and then that comes up later in the movie at one of the, the stories that we actually end the movie on about the, the, the Rua Zimbabwe sighting from all these school children and where James had gathered these kids, now adults, to... Well, give us give us a little background of the Zimbabwe story because that I, I know that's been around the UFO field for a long time and people in the field are aware of it, but, but many of the listeners aren't that... Uh, familiar with it, that that particular case because it takes obviously takes place in Africa. Fill us in a little bit on that. Yeah, I believe it was 1994. Am I am I correct with that that year? Uh, there's so many dates to have to remember about all the things. But but it was that the the in Rua, Zimbabwe, uh, and uh, I believe it was mostly middle middle age middle age middle <laughs> middle school children, and and suddenly. At one point during the day, when they were all out playing in the field, they all—all all of them saw this this cr- circular craft come down and actually land uh, on the ground. It was one of those few cases where a, th- a thing was reported to actually land, and the the children weren't really afraid of it. And in fact, some of the children went running into the school to try and get some of the teachers to come out and see it. Also, there was even one teacher. Who, who said that he didn't believe it was happening, so he wasn't even going to come out to see. But they they had this experience of seeing the thing on the ground and then also seeing some kind of a, of a being, like a four-and-a-half to five-foot-tall being that they, they, they all were asked to draw pictures because authorities came in and had them draw things. And they all drew, drew similar things of what the, sh- the ship, the craft, the object, whatever it was, looked like, um, what the being looked like. And you know, Kevin, that typical larger head, large, elongated black eyes. They were, they were totally captivated by the black, unusual eyes. And they, they just recounted these stories in such a way, and then to bring them back years later, to, to talk about this, the same experience as adults was really interesting because these are not kids anymore and they, they, they never gave the story up. There was no reason at all for them to have made it all up. And it's one of those cases that does remain unexplained. It's, it's what were the, when you talk to the adults, did you get any kind of feeling they were suffering any kind of, um, I don't want to say post-traumatic stress from, from the experience, but any kind of after effects from the experience, well, the things that they remembered? I, I will tell you that several of them on camera uh, will, will say that they feel a little nervous, uh, a little apprehensive about going there again to the area, to the site of where it happened. They just didn't know if they wanted to ever go back there again. Uh, but because they knew that others were going to be there that went through the same thing, they agreed to reunite one more time. It's, it's, so the, there's an emotional impact. And, uh, and it was one of, the, one of the cases that drew the attention of uh, Harvard psychiatrist 
uh, Dr. John Mack, who went there and did his own interviews with the children. Um, it was it was just one of those cases where it, it's it's easy to say, wow, oh, that that crap never happened. Who believes this stuff? Who believes kids? You know, they're just making it all up. It was just a game. No, it's not always a game to the people who go through these experiences. And and again, what we're not doing in the movie, Kevin, is we're not really deliberately trying to promote the idea that we're being visited by someone from Alpha Centauri. We don't go there at all. We're letting the people talk about what happened to them. Um, but we are not saying what we think this is all about because we don't well, know. Getting back, getting back to the case, how, how long was the, was the craft on the ground? How long oh, did it remain? I, I think it was only there for a few minutes, if I recall. Uh, I don't remember the, the exact stretch of time. James might, might have more information on that. Uh, but were again, there, were I, there landing yeah. traces? Were there landing traces? Were there something left on the ground? Uh, with the Zamora case, we had uh, we had the burning bush. We had the, right. the implants, implant, implants, yes, imprints right. on the right. ground. Uh, do we have anything like that uh, in this nothing, case? No, nothing that I understand came out unless I haven't heard about it. Uh, I don't believe that we had anything like that at all from this particular case. Um, I could be wrong. There were so many different aspects to it, but it was it was just the look of the craft, the shape of it, uh, the um, the being itself. And, and again, I'm not saying it was an alien. I, I won't go there because how can I? I don't know. None of us know. But all all that we can say for sure is that this this is one of those kinds of cases where it um, it happened. It was not a hoax of the famous case earlier than that. Do you remember the case from Papua New Guinea, the Reverend uh, William Gill, uh, the missionary from uh, Australia? Uh, he was living in a village in, in New Guinea, and one day um, over the village, this circular craft appeared, and it, it hovered for a long time. And, and they saw windows, and they could see beings standing on what looked like a, a, like a platform above what were probably windows. And it was there for at least 45 minutes. And, and the Reverend Gill said they, they tried to get it. They tried to wave at it to get it to maybe come down and land, but it never did. But, but he and other villagers waved, and, and they drew, all, drew pictures of these beings waving back to them from standing on this platform. Again, none of these people would have made this up. It's not a hoax. They, they told the story. They believed it, and there are other cases like this. Uh, it, it's like there was, you, a case, there was a case from Westfall. Was it West, uh, where school children were involved in a similar fashion? Uh, right in, in Australia. Yes, in Australia. Yes. Yeah. Uh, did you explore that case at all? Yeah, that that's in the movie as well. That one comes first. We save the uh, the Rua Zimbabwe one to the end. In in, in that case, um, a craft actually came down in the field behind some trees and was just resting on the ground. Uh, and uh, several students saw it, and uh, it made a humming noise before it lifted up, and lights were seen all around it before it lifted up and shot away at, at an incredible speed with, uh, with no seeming propulsion system at all. And that was, again, one of those cases where you had a lot of uh, school children involved, and also there were teachers involved who saw the thing, and we, we, we brought back people now grown up all a lot of the students that were there uh now we're back talking as adults saying they, they'll never forget what happened they they all remember it just like it happened yesterday and, and they they had no reason to make that kind of a story up it's like you get to a point where how many of these stories do you have to listen to before you stop applying some kind of critical thinking if it's not if it's not aliens if it's not extra dimensional if it's some kind of human psychosis or or psychological thing well shouldn't that be studied so that we know what's going on with these people what's making people respond to these or report these kinds of incidents was there was there any physical traces found in that case i believe that there was a matting of uh, of the ground on that one yeah where the thing had had actually rested on the ground 
See, because that, that's the thing that always strikes me is if you've got some something like that landing, there should be some kind of physical traces left behind, and that would add a level of credibility to the story simply because there's something other than the observations of the witnesses or something that can be looked at, and maybe some um, information can be derived from... Well, I think with the with the Zamora case, they were trying to figure out the compression rate of the soil so they could figure out the weight of the craft that, that landed there and that sort of thing. Well, in, in this case, uh, I believe it was in this one, the uh, authorities came in and the uh, the school children were, were rounded up and they were they were all bunched together in like a uh, big conference area where all the kids could sit together and they were told by by the school and by the authorities what you didn't see anything happen here and you're not to talk about this to anyone. They were specifically all told that. Okay, let me break in. Let me break in here because we're going to have we're going to have to take a break. Yeah, and uh, we'll be back with more information about this and some other aspects. But before I I break away here, I just did want to mention there's some other fine programs about the paranormal on the Exxon Broadcast Network at xzbn.net. Go to the website, take a look at those, and something there will surely spark your interest. I will be back right after this with Lee Spiegel, and we will continue our discussion of the phenomenon and of UFOs. So please stick around. Spiegel in different states to maintain our social distancing. I hesitate to bring it up. I'm not sure if the interest is there in the audience. It's certainly one of my interests. Clearly, in a movie about the phenomenon, you have to talk about the Roswell case. What exactly did you find anything new or exciting in the Roswell case? What exactly did you handle in that? Among the things that we handled were some some footage that I don't know if, if a lot of people have seen footage of um, Colonel Jesse Marcel, who was the uh, the intelligence officer at Roswell Air Army Air Base back in 1947 when this whole thing erupted um, and a report came in that something had crashed or fallen out of the sky during a, a storm. Um, and it wasn't right at Roswell. It was, it was many miles like 50 or 60 miles outside of the town. But the word got back to <clears throat> Marcel uh, at the air base, who was ordered to go out there and take another officer with him and um, and, and see what's out there. And, well, you say, you say you have some footage of Marcel? We have, we have um, some, some footage that probably uh, came from, uh, I'm going to guess, the 1970s. Uh, he may have done this for one of those shows, like In Search of, those, where they had, uh, where they were dis- exploring things like this, like the Roswell incident. But I think we we probably show a little bit more because we got we got the licensing rights for the footage, much of which I hadn't even seen before. But it actually shows uh, Marcel in a in like a, an SUV driving to the actual crash site. And he's inside the car, and they've got the camera on him, and he's talking about where they ne- they never could have found the site by themselves if they hadn't been taken there by the rancher. And then it cuts to a scene of where he's actually walking along the debris field, which was originally the size of, I think, a dozen football fields. And he says on camera, um, there was debris wreckage here all over the place, scattered all over this huge space. And... For them to say a day or two later that it was nothing but a weather balloon, no, this was no weather balloon. This 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 wasn't a weather balloon. It had properties to it. Uh, we couldn't we couldn't hurt it with a sledgehammer. We couldn't dent it. We couldn't burn it. Uh, and and we were just told to bring all the material back to the airbase. And uh, I was supposed to fly the material down to Fort Worth, Texas, for analysis and. Then there are these famous pictures showing how he was ordered to pose with the alleged 
Roswell weather balloon crash material. And he said, uh, the uh, General Ramey, General Roger Ramey, uh, and I both knew that was not the real stuff. Uh, you have actual footage of him saying that? Oh, yeah. Of him, of him saying, he said, General Ramey and I knew that that was not true at all. Um, sure. Yeah, it, it's, it's really good stuff. And well, the reason the reason I the reason I asked that question yeah is because the photographs clearly show a weather balloon in a Raywind target. I mean there's no question about what's in the photographs. And Marcel is quoted in yeah, yeah. Moore's book as saying if I'm in the photograph it's the real stuff and if it's anybody else it's not the real stuff. And of course the photographs of Ramey and, and Ramey and Debose all yes. have the same same stuff in it. Yeah. So that presented something of a conundrum, you know, uh, about that. So th that quote by Marcel was always kind of puzzling. And you now have him saying we, we knew that wasn't the real stuff. We, we have a, a photograph of Ramey and DuBose posing uh, with what looks like real weather balloon stuff. And, um, and we also have an old film of DuBose talking about basically saying, you know, that was, that was not, not a weather balloon and, and, and you will not talk anything more about this it's it's above secret and blah 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 it goes on like that we were able to get this kind of archival footage from people like DuBose I had I hadn't even really heard that much about DuBose I didn't even know what he sounded like until I first saw this little clip we got him in the movie uh, a and, reporter a reporter Johnny Mann for WWL TV in New Orleans mm -hmm. did a series in the 19 1980s I guess of uh, UFO sightings, did the Calvin Parker, uh, Charles Hickson yeah. abduction, took Marcel to, to New Mexico. And uh, the, the reason I bring that up is because uh, Mann had a copy of the book, the, the Roswell incident, and he was slipping through it and he came to the pictures that show, supposedly show the real debris. Right. And, and he says to Jesse Marcel, Jess, got to tell you, that looks like the real stuff. And Marcel says, "No, that's not the stuff I brought from I brought from uh, Roswell," and and I bring this up because I of course I I talked to man and sat in his living room and we discussed this at length, but he also gave me some footage of Marcel saying that uh, this was something that came to Earth but was not made on Earth, which I thought was kind of an interesting quote by Marcel. Yes, he in our film, you while he's still out there on the <laughs> in the debris field area. You, you, he's very serious. He said, that the, whatever this was, uh, it was not of this world. He says that in the film. And well, well, you know, Sheridan Cavett is the other guy that went out with him. Right, right. The counterintelligence guy. And the counterintelligence guy told Richard Weaver, Colonel Weaver, who did the Air Force investigation in the mid-1990s, that uh, he identified it as a balloon immediately when he saw it. Well, uh, unless, unless he was ordered... To say that, because we also have um, Marcel uh, on camera saying that uh, he was told, in fact, when he got there, before they did, they posed for the pictures to the press, he said, there were all these microphones everywhere, and the press wanted me to make a statement, and I couldn't, because I was ordered to keep my mouth shut and just, just lean there and pose with the material. That's all I was supposed to do. And, and we've got him saying that. Uh, and, and then and he, what he told me, when I interviewed Marcel, because Stan Friedman, the late nuclear physicist Stan Friedman, who was the first, I think, the yes, first Yes, we also, we always, when we talk, to, talk about Stan Friedman, we also have to say nuclear physicist, because that's really part of his name now, I think. Yes, yeah. yeah. Yes, that was a sarcastic comment I just felt I had to make. Anyhow, you were, that, you, no, that, you, that, you talked to Marcel, you talked to Marcel and said. I, I talked with Marcel when, after I started working on uh, NBC radio. Stan put me in touch with him, convinced Marcel that there's this guy at NBC that he could trust to, to tell a story. So this is back in 1978 or early 79 when I interviewed Marcel. And, and he said to me that while I was posing for that material back then, uh, the real stuff that we had brought back uh, was actually being bo boarded onto a large aircraft out there on the tarmac, away from where the press was, and that's the stuff that was going to be flown somewhere else for analysis. So I said, well, is there anyone who was there uh, who was involved with that aspect of picking up large pieces and putting them on board the craft? He said, yeah, um, you could, uh, if you want, I could put you in touch with uh, one of the, uh, the flight engineers. His name was Robert Porter, and I never forgot that name, and I'll put you in touch with him, and he'll 
He'll tell you what what he did. And I called this Robert Porter, and I interviewed him for NBC. He said, yeah, um, there were all these pieces of something, but it was all under tarpaulin or, or big sheets of something. So I couldn't actually see what was under there. But uh, one of the guys who was waiting on the bomber said to me, pick that big one up. Just hand it up to me. And I said to him, there's no way. That thing is going to be weigh a ton. He said, no, just go ahead. Trust me. You, you'll pick it up. And I went over to this gigantic piece of whatever, and it was like as light as a feather. And I just literally handed it up to the guy on the bomber waiting for it. Said I couldn't believe how light this was. Yeah. And you know who? Do you know who Robert Porter's mother was? No. Lydia Proctor. I sh should I know that name? Hmm. Yes, because uh, when Mac Brazel found the debris yeah. and took it to show somebody, he took it to the Proctors, Floyd and Loretta Proctor. Wow. Because Robert Porter grew up on the ranch that it was adjacent to the ranch that uh, Mac Brazel had uh, managed. Huh. So, uh, and that was how we got to Robert Porter when we talked uh, to Robert oh. Porter. That. We got it through his mother. I thought that was kind of an interesting coincidence there. Well, that is. And it is what I just told you, did that jive with what he told you? When you... The, the, only, the only problem I have is Linda Corley interviewed Marcel sometime later, before he died in 86, obviously. Yeah. And uh, she did a book called For the Sake of My Country. And in that book, Marcel is quoted as saying that the real debris, when he was handling the weather balloon, the real debris was under the butcher paper that you can see in the uh, office. Some of the real debris was in, in, in Ramey's office, but it was hidden under the butcher paper. And I found that a little bit disturbing. Yeah, that's uh, a little weird because if, that's, if they were going to hide weather balloon stuff or even weird stuff in the same room where the press was there, that's, that's kind of taking a big chance, isn't it? Well, that, that's it. Uh, but from what we can discern, there's only one reporter who ever went to Ramey's office when the debris was in the room, and that was J. Bon Johnson. Mm. And then he, he stepped all over his credibility by changing his story significantly so he uh -huh. could become much more important to um, the Roswell case than he really was. I mean, having been there and it photographed the stuff with General Ramey and the Ramey memo that we all talk about, uh, he's the one that took the photograph of Ramey holding that document that we've all been trying to decipher for the That's last right, in his, in his hand, right? Yeah, I know that yes. one, yeah. And, and there's more to come on, on that as well as we, as we move, move forward here in our investigation of UFOs. But I, the thing that bothers me is, is Marcel's story, and I hesitate to say this, but his story, uh, there, there's some pieces of his story that, that are bothersome, that are worrisome, that, that just don't quite jive, and that, that kind of disturbs me. Can I ask you a question? Yes. O overall, because you've looked into the Roswell case a lot over the years, what's your personal take on this? You know, that's the second time in two weeks I've been asked that question on my show. <laughs> Well, and I could be really, I could be really mean and say, "Hey, look it up on the uh, the show from last week." But <laughs> well, we want to know. We want to know. What I said at that time, and I'll say it again, is when we were in the early 1990s. Yes. And Don, Don, and I were doing the investigation. We talked to a lot, a lot of people. It seemed to be a very robust case. We had hmm. witnesses to the bodies. We had witnesses to this, witnesses to that. We had, yeah. all, we had a mortician for crying out loud. Right. Right. And now we've evolved to the point where the mortician probably was making up his tale. It uh, wasn't true. Uh, Frank Kaufman, who was one of the great sources about the craft and the bodies, turned out to be less than candid about his involvement and probably wasn't involved at all. Mm. So when I'm asked that question, I say it's, the case is not nearly as robust as it once was, that, that some of the, the key witnesses have, have imploded. But when I look for an explanation, what fell at Roswell? Everybody agrees something fell at Roswell. Right. You agree? I agree. The skeptics agree. The debunkers agree. Mm -hmm. um, the Martians ag agree. Both presidential <laughs> candidates agree that <laughs> yeah. something fell at Roswell. I just made up the presidential candidates. Nobody's asking that specific question. Anyway, the question is, what was it? I know of no terrestrial explanation is that enough to leap to the extraterrestrial? For me, not quite. I want something more. I want something something more concrete. For some people, that's sufficient. We cannot identify it in terrestrial terms. That's sufficient. So I lean toward the extraterrestrial, but I'm just not there to pronounce it 100%. This is what it was. Uh, well, I, I agree. Uh, and we don't try to make that kind of a leap at all in the film. And we didn't even 
even touch upon the speculation that it was Germany that was testing out some some new aircraft to see how how close could they get to to America, you know, before an invasion. And and there were some problems. Either it was shot out of the sky or it was hit by lightning. I mean, there's all kinds of stuff out there. You don't know what to believe. But but you're right. Something well, did happen there. I think I think we debunked most of the counterclaims in uh, Roswell in the 21st century. So you can you can take a look at that and see where we're. Uh, Lee, I got to tell you, we're out of time here. Okay, I'm sorry to hear that. Uh, <laughs> so am I, because it's an interesting <laughs> discussion. We're um, we're gonna say goodbye to you. Thank you for your time. Thank you. And and appreciate you uh, filling us in on the details of the phenomenon. I think it'll uh, be a good movie that everybody should see. I, I think people will enjoy it, whether they're believers or skeptics, or if they're undecided, they're in between. It'll be something that that should have at least one. Oh, I didn't know that about it. By well, there you go. Thank you much. Next week, I'm going to be joined by Ben Moss. He's got a new book um, about the uh, about the Roswell about the Socorro case. He and I are going to have dueling opinions on that. I think it'll be an interesting discussion. See what he's found and what we agree on and disagree with. And I, I mentioned w Richard Weaver before. I want to get to this quickly. Richard Weaver is the Air Force officer who was ramrodding the Roswell investigation in the 90s. He will be on the program uh, on the following week after after Ben Moss and we'll have an opportunity to talk to him and I think he's going to tell you some things about the Air Force investigation you didn't know because I didn't know that and uh, he shared that with uh, with me as well uh, once again my blog will have more information up at www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com you have been listening to a different perspective on the X-Zone Broadcast Network I'll be back in 167 hours thanks for tuning in